ETF Prime is hosted by Nature Racing, president of investment advisory firm, the ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with ETF Trends and ETF Database or any of its affiliates. ETF Trends and ETF Database participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or an indication by ETF Trends and ETF Database of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. Digital assets applications, technology, and use cases have exploded in recent years. Digital assets miners have emerged as a crucial part of this ecosystem and play a critical role in the validating and processing of blockchain transactions. Consider the Vanek Digital Assets Mining ETF, ticker DAM, when positioning your portfolio to include digital assets mining companies. Investing involves substantial risk and high volatility, including possible loss of principal. An investor should consider the fund's objective risks, charges, and expenses carefully before investing. To obtain a perspective, Call 800-826-2333 or visit vanek.com. Please read the prospectus carefully before investing. Now it's time for ETF Prime, where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, joining me this week will be Tom Hendrickson, Chief Product and Innovation Officer at Vetify, which you may have seen this last week, ETF Trends and ETF Database, along with Alarian and S-Network Global Indexes, these are now all under the collective Vetify brand. Pretty big news in the ETF space, so we'll certainly discuss that. And then we're also going to take a look at which equity ETFs are seeing the most engagement from investors and advisors on the Vetify platform right now. And you may recall the last time Tom joined me, just a couple of weeks ago, we discussed how not much is working in portfolios this year, right? The S&P 500 is down 16%. Broad bonds are down 10%. Most other asset classes are negative. And so we homed in on commodities, which have been working. And we looked at some specific ETFs here. And then we also talked about how on the fixed income side, advisors are looking at areas like shorter duration bond ETFs. Uh, floating rate note ETFs, tips, those sorts of things to try and avoid some of the bond carnage. Well, this week, we are going to do the same thing on the equity ETF side. We're going to find out where advisors are looking for opportunities or uh, at least seeking refuge within equity. So we'll get into those ETFs here in just a moment. Also joining me this week will be Nick Bonesack, CEO of Strategus Asset Management and portfolio manager on two ETFs they just launched earlier this year, the Strategus Macro Thematic Opportunities ETF, ticker SAMT, and the Strategus Global Policy Opportunity ETF, ticker SAGP. And this will be perfect because Nick is a fantastic resource on the financial markets. So he leads the Strategus Quantitative Research Team, uh, He's as sharp as you'll find on the markets. Uh, so we're actually going to discuss stocks, uh, what he thinks about the Fed and inflation and valuations right now. Uh, it should be a great conversation. And we'll, of course, touch on those two strategic uh, ETFs. And then to close this week, another market expert, I'll be joined by David Auerbach, Managing Director at Armada ETF Advisors, who they also launched an ETF earlier this year the Home Appreciation U.S. REIT ETF, ticker HAUS, H-A-U-S. And we'll spotlight that, but I'm telling you now, few have the level of expertise on the real estate market like David does. So I'm very interested in hearing how he's viewing residential real estate right now. When you think about mortgage rates nearing 5.5%, uh, the economy does appear to be slowing down, but yet there's still this lack of housing inventory on the market. So again, very interested in hearing David's thoughts on that space moving forward. 
As always, questions or comments, you can find me on Twitter, at Nate Geraci, or you can send comments to etfprime.com. Let's start with Betify's Tom Hendrickson. Now we're joined by the experts at Vetify, a new data analytics and thought leadership company that is transforming financial services from an industry to a community, one relationship at a time. We can deliver value to that advisor because that's what they're telling that they want to engage in. We want to make sure that we're putting the right pieces of content in front of them at the right time. Tom, thanks for joining me this week. Great to be here. All right, so Vetify, tell us about this. Uh, pretty big news. You know, I, I feel like ETF Trends and ETF Database, those brands have been around for as long as I've been in the uh, ETF space, actually longer, which is saying something. Uh, tell us about this new branding with Vetify. Yeah, so Nate, it's, it, was a, it was a really um, educational and enjoyable experience to go through the process to think about all of the attributes that we have to be able to bring to the market. And, and so we think about ourselves uh, as a fintech who is a B2B, so a business-to-business company that has sincere B2C responsibilities, so uh, you know, business-to-consumer. And so by that, I mean you know, a lot of the folks that we work with, clients, are, are issuers and have products in the market that ultimately the community that comes and visits uh, the Vetify platform via the ETF Trends and Database platforms historically. Um, they're doing research about best ways to access investment strategies, how to position client portfolios, how to educate clients all along their, their journey of you know, building wealth, ultimately achieving their goals. And so as we thought about all of those component parts that we have as Vetify, uh, we really needed a name to embody that end-to-end service that we're able to deliver while also speaking to the rich heritage, as you uh, mentioned, as it relates to um, all the things that we've done historically and, and making sure that there is, is certainly all of those things are brought into the future. And so if you think about um, the name in, in and of itself, it, it was a process that I was able to be a part of. Uh, certainly a small part. There is a, a team of experts, both internal and external, who helped us think it through the name. But even this, the way in which we thought about that, we, we tried to uh, layer in all of our core values and, and all the ways that we wanted the market to perceive this end-to-end capability set that we have. So everything that we do is certainly um, underpinned by a, a rigorous and uh, disciplined nature as it comes to data. And so if you think about the root word vet, you know, to thoroughly investigate something before making a decision. So that's a hat tip there. And then, and then VEDA in Sanskrit actually is, is one who knows or an expert. And in Italian, it means a summit or a peak. And so the, the, the word VEDA certainly has some uh, dual meaning. And then phi is a hat tip to a, you know, the short form of our world, which is finance. And, but it also speaks to the fact that, you know, we're forward leaning and thinking about things from a technology first standpoint. So as we think about the collective assets of uh, ETF trends, ETF database, Alarian, S network global indexes, we needed to be able to speak to the market in a cohesive voice, which ultimately will be able to enable us to deliver more value to partners, uh, that B2B relationship that I referenced, but it's also going to enable us to do more and we're going to get into some of the, the ways in which we're doing this, Nate, as it relates to my role, but to continue to invest in tools, in data, in the front-end technology that is empowering our platform. So those B2C relationships that we have, for example, with our advisor community that you and I talk quite a bit about, uh, we want to invest behind all the things that have, have been successful to date, but also innovate for you know, the, the future needs of, of that audience and, and looking forward to do that under the Vetify brand. I have to ask you, I saw a uh, piece from Todd Rosenbluth last week where he pointed out that uh, ETF, so, so literally the, the acronym ETF, it, those letters are still in the Vetify name, right? The, the letters are actually in there. Was that intentional or did you uh, just get lucky there? Well, it, it was intentional, Nate, but I, I take absolutely zero credit. It was that, that all-star team that we had that I was able to be a, a cheerleader around. Um, and, and there was like, that's a good example of the thought that went into it. And, 
And you mentioned, you know, some of the history of the brands. One of the things that we're you're going to see in the market is where there's instances where those uh, legacy brands like Alarian, for example, and the rich history that it has as it relates as a, as a pioneer in the MLP space, we're going to pay homage to those brands as we go forward under the branded house Vetify. And there, you're going to see instances like that, like that sort of uh, Easter egg, if you will, where ETF still exists in Vetify. Literally, you cannot spell Vetify without ETF. And, and you're going to see in some other instances, be it Alaria and ETF Trends ETF database where we pull some of those brands forward. And just uh, briefly here, you, you mentioned your role. I noted at the uh, the top, you're now Chief Product and Innovation Officer. Is anything changing with your responsibilities? I think uh, a, a little bit, Nate. Uh, certainly, uh, a lot of what I have done historically, I'm going to continue to do. But I think that across Vetify, we want to crisp up our focus. And, and one of the things that, as you grow as a company and as you grow uh, your solution line and your capabilities and the ways in which you're interacting with uh, clients and customers, uh, you need to you need to look for a, an amount of specialization. And so, really, my role is going to become more focused on one of the components that I historically was related. Was I, that I was focused on, which was, you know, building products and tools to engage advisors and investors and other segments of the market in ways that ultimately drive that, that data flywheel that you and I so often talk about. We think that uh, great engagement on the platform is going to inform better decisions and insights for us to position content in ways in which are going to ultimately deliver more value to that community. That's a bit of that virtuous cycle as, as we think about, you know, the product and our go-to-market um, you know, on the digital platform. And, and I'm going to be doing more of that. We're going to be investing in that as we are across the entirety of the company. You know, for example, uh, you know, talent, uh, you know, our talent continues to grow. Just this morning, you know, Vetify named Brian Coco, uh, head of index products. So Brian comes to us from, from JP Morgan Asset Management and has a rich history in building some of the most innovative uh, indexes, you know, around. And, and we look forward to uh, tapping into that. But also, you know, I'm going to work closely with, with Brian and think about ways in which we can use that disciplined and unique perspective that we have on, on data to inform uh, all the things that we're doing, including some of the construction of indexes. All right. So that's the perfect segue here, because I do think listeners have come to expect that anytime you join me on the podcast, we do typically lean into your data and analytics and certainly behavioral analysis uh, of advisors, because you do have this real-time intelligence on the entire ETF uh, universe. So this week, we're going to look at equity ETFs through that lens. And what I like about this is, look, you and I have talked a lot recently about uh, where investors and advisors are looking to hide out, given that stocks and bonds are off to a historically bad start to the year. And we've obviously focused on things like commodities and alternatives. And then even on the bond side, we've looked at areas like shorter duration ETFs, tips, floating rate notes, but we haven't really discussed what investors are doing differently on the equity side with the S&P 500 now down 16% this year and the NASDAQ down 26%. So I'm looking forward to this because you have data on where advisors have been engaging on the Vetify platform and where they haven't. Now, I, I did think to start here, I know we've done this before, Tom, but given the Vetify rebrand. And just for people who haven't heard this before, can you briefly explain where this data comes from that we're going to look at? Yeah, so Nate, absolutely. And, and you're, you're exactly right. We've, we've talked about, um, you know, just as recently as a couple weeks ago, but it's been a theme that we've touched on over, you know, the last number of quarters is that this idea of, you know, uh, the 60-40 and, and dissecting that 40 and, and where are advisors, uh, you know, leaning in there, what types of asset classes are they looking to maybe replace a little bit of that fixed income exposure? But we haven't recently drilled into that 60 or, or the equity part. And so that's what we're going to look at today. And so where this data is derived is, is across the Vetify platform, we're interacting with tens of thousands of financial advisors and hundreds of thousands of investors of all types on, an, on a daily basis. And we're monitoring their activity on the back end, thinking about all the ways in which we've tagged and cohorted content, which enables us to, to look at where is time being spent. So if you think of an advisor minute or an investor's minute of that 60 seconds, 
where are they spending time? And you think about, okay, well, let's look at that through the fixed income lens. Is that in, you know, short duration, long duration? Is it in tips? Is it in munis? Is it elsewhere? And of that minute, what is the proportional amount of time that that investor or advisor is spending on each one of those component parts? And then as you continue to drill down, you can then go all the way down to the product level and think about how are they looking ultimately to gain exposure to a, a specific strategy. And so what that enables us to do is it enables us to take that data and take it to our research and editorial team and think about, are we positioning our content? Are we uh, positioned within the conversation that is the most important to that advisor or that investor at that point in time? And are we leaning in there to make sure that we're doing our job and in, in educating them so that they have the right tools at their disposal to make great decisions about either their portfolio or client portfolios? And, and really that's, um, you know, how we think about the data. And, and, and you know, I'm going to run through a lot of different, uh, you know, just sort of tidbits here, Nate, about some of the hot and cold dots. Um, but this is the data that we are looking at, like literally have teams of, of folks pouring over and, and thinking about how we can use in the most effective manner to deliver product to those users. So that's, that's a little bit of the context there. And so, so diving in, as we think about that equity side, wh where are advisors looking uh, in the first quarter of 2022 versus the, the fourth quarter of 2021? And there was a few that you know sort of jumped off the page as, as I was going through the data and, and look, looking for your perspective here as well, Nate. So as we think about sort of the core part of the equity portfolio, interest in dividend ETFs continues to be really strong. Um, you know, a couple of tickers that you know even within the context of great engagement within dividend ETFs, CDC, uh, a victory shares U.S. equally weighted uh, volatility weighted ETF with an income enhancement on it, about 70% uh, increased engagement from a quarter over quarter perspective. Uh, the, the Pacer suite, you know, for example, GCOW, ticker GCOW, uh, the Pacer Global Cash Cows Dividend ETF up over 200% uh, quarter over quarter, and, and that entire suite seems to have, you know, significant engagement. But across the entire dividend spectrum, where I think you, you said the word, Nate, where advisors are, are um, hiding out a little bit, I think they're certainly looking for, for that dividend, um, you know, attributes of the income, but also a little bit of the muted volatility. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, if you look at the relative performance of dividend ETFs to something like the S&P 500, there has been fairly substantial outperformance across the board. I, I just pulled up the performance on the, uh, the, the Pacer Global Cash Cows dividend ETF. That thing's up 9% year to date. And you compare that to the S&P 500 being down uh, 16%. I mean, that's a, that's a big difference. So it makes sense to me that advisors are, are researching and, and looking for additional information in the dividend ETF space. Yeah, and in, in a similar vein, um, you know, I looked at all the, uh, the team and I looked at all of the um, ETF tickers that had the name quality in it. And so, you know, there's different, you know, uh, attributes of quality, but we looked, we um, filtered only to the equity space. So we're looking at ETF equals equity and has the, the, uh, the, the word quality within the name. And that, that showed about 15 or 16% quarter over quarter engagement. You know, so a couple of examples there, the Wisdom Tree Global XUS Quality Dividend Growth Fund. So you're getting a, a mixture there, not only quality, but that international flavor as well. And that actually rung true through a number of the different quality names, like, for example, IQDF, the FlexShares International Quality Dividend Index Fund. Those two funds, even within the context of quality, showed relative outperformance at about 25 or 30 percent uh, quarter over quarter. So, again, the idea of where advisors are hiding out and, and you know, to your point, Nate, some of the performance within that um, you know, broader list of ETFs was, was quite strong. So a good place for advisors to be. Um, you know, at least having some some focus or, or allocation. The international aspect is interesting to me because, again, if you look at the, the relative performance of, say, developed international or emerging markets versus the S&P 500, international is actually outperformed. Not substantially, but, but there is a difference there. And so I think if you combine that international exposure with something like a dividend focus, or a quality focus. Again, it makes sense that advisors uh, are engaging there. One question I have for you is, w when I think about dividends and, and quality, um, look, bo both of those obviously are can be part of a core portfolio, right? 
Uh, but but I'm curious, are you seeing anything around, say, low volatility or equally weighted ETFs, like other areas where advisors might be rethinking how they get that core exposure? Or, or did that not really stand out in the data? Yeah, no, Nate, we actually did look at that. So like for, to just to give uh, the audience some some ideas of, of some of the tickers there. So like SPLV, the Invesco, you know, S&P 500 low vol ETF, RSP, also an Invesco product, which is the equal weighting of the S&P or QQQE, which is an equally weighted way of getting exposure to the to the NASDAQ 100, YPS, USMB. So these are all different you know, slightly different variations and flavors on the theme of low volatility and or equal weighting. And so I did look at that data, Nate, and, and that was relatively flat in the first quarter versus the fourth quarter, which frankly surprised me a little bit. But amongst those five tickers that I mentioned, there was there was an, uh, um, more interest in SPLV and RSP, the two Invesco products, probably with an eye towards, you know, that exposure to the S&P 500 as opposed to maybe some of those other uh, uh, other indices. And, and so I'm curious on your take there, both the low vol and the equal weight S&P 500 had the most amongst that group in terms of advisor engagement. Well, I'm gonna be a broken record here because again, I think it comes down to performance. I mean, if you look at SPLV right now, that's down about 7% on the year, again, compared to, to down 16% for the S&P 500. If you look at RSP, the equal weighted version, that's down 12%. So still outperformance there. And I, I just my it's not that advisors are performance chasing. I don't think it's that. I just think that when you're looking, we've had a regime shift in terms of, of the market environment. Right. The Fed's not being supportive of the market the way they were before. And so I do think advisors are taking a step back and going, OK, if we don't have these easy money policies, maybe it's not going to be a you know mega cap tech show moving forward. And we need to rethink how we construct our, the core of our portfolios. And so that's driving that interest around the, these alternative uh, ways to get that exposure to core equity. So, no, I, I, again, makes sense to me. Um, what, what about on the thematic side? So we've talked about core here. I mean, anything jumping out to you on thematic ETFs? Yeah, aer aerospace and defense, um, you know, getting exposure to, you know, a, lo a lot of similar um, – you know, underlying companies power a big parts of those specific ETFs. So if you look at a, you know, PPA or XAR, the Invesco or, or the, S, the, the Spider Aerospace and Defense products, a lot of the whole underlying holdings, so Northrop Grumman, Lockheed, Raytheon, you know, General Dynamics, Honeywell, names like that have performed quite well. Obviously, what's going on from a geopolitical standpoint and what's happening in Eastern Europe is driving some of that interest and some of that performance. But the aerospace and defense as a whole, that sector showed almost, you know, 300% quarter over quarter interest. So as, as a theme or, or as a strategy, you know, certainly getting some significant attention across the platform. All right. Just briefly here, what about on the other side? So equity ETFs where you're seeing a drop in advisor engagement, anything standing out there? Yeah. And again, you know, Nate, you spoke or gave me an opportunity to uh, talk about the data and, and, and so... It, it is zero sum, you know, an advisor only has one minute to spend. And I'm not suggesting that that's how long advisors are engaged in the platform for upwards of, you know, five to 10 to 20 minutes at a time. But for every one minute, there is only 60 seconds. So for every over weighting of their behavioral interest, there has to be some some puts on the other side of the ledger, so to speak. And so where where is that attention coming from or where is it down? Probably also not highly shocking, but, you know, the fintech suite, the blockchain suite, even large cap tech, all down significantly quarter over quarter. You know, so you could think about fintech as, you know, a product like an ARC F, uh, the ARC fintech innovation ETF, or you think about, you know, the blockchain space. We've talked about a couple of these names historically, BLOK or BKCH, you know, the Amplify and Global X respectively products. That whole space, you know, as you're seeing performance, uh, you know, come come down significantly. Advisors are turning their attention to those other areas that we talked about uh, just a little bit ago. And and obviously, you know, the thing that is most interesting as you roll around in this data, Nate, and, and something that we kind of try to look for is that performance is, is a uh, rear view metric. You're, you're looking historically what happened. 
One thing that's interesting is to find where advisors are spending time about how things might foretell the future. And, and so you're know, using it as a bit of a predictive mechanism to think about uh, where is the puck going? And some of these things are, are speaking to the fact that this is a bit of a, you know, a high correlation to what's happened historically. But one thing that the team and I spend some significant amount of time on is thinking about where are advisors spending attention, where are investors engaging on the platform, and how does that speak to uh, what, what may be happening in the future? Well, Tom, great stuff as always this week. Uh, congratulations on the rebrand and everything you're doing with Vetify. I'm really excited for you and the team, but thank you for joining me this week. Thanks, Nate. Have a great day. That was Tom Hendrickson, Chief Product and Innovation Officer at Vetify. And now a word from iShares. The shift to a low-carbon economy is changing the way people invest iShares sustainable ETFs help you position your portfolio to manage sustainability-related opportunities and risks, such as climate change. Get your share of progress at iShares.com sustainable. Visit iShares.com to view a prospectus which includes investment objectives, risks, fees, expenses, and other information that you should read and consider carefully before investing. Risk includes principal loss. There is no guarantee any fund will exhibit positive or favorable sustainability characteristics. Prepared by BlackRock Investments, LLC. joined by Nick Bonesack, CEO of Strategus Asset Management and also Portfolio Manager for the first two ETFs launched by Strategus earlier this year, their Macro Thematic Opportunities ETF, ticker SAMT, and their Global Policy Opportunity ETF, ticker SAGP. And these are off to a nice start, already with about $35 million in combined assets. And Nick is now on the line with me from New York. Nick, thanks for joining me. Nate, thanks for having me. We, uh, you're nice to make some time. Well, so look, we're certainly going to get into the uh, two ETFs, but I actually want to start by talking about the financial markets right now, just given everything going on. And I, I was talking a little bit uh, about this in the uh, prior segment, but I'll, I'll set the stage with this. So I look at the S&P 500. That's down 16% on the year. Uh, you look at aggregate bonds. Those are down 10%. Just about everything outside of commodities is negative. And obviously, the Fed and inflation have been front and center, but we also have a war in Ukraine. There are still COVID concerns in various parts of the world. There is a lot going on. And so I'm just curious, as you look at the overall state of the markets right now, what are you seeing from a macro perspective? Like, like how are you explaining the current environment to clients? Yeah, well, it's it is the right starting point for sure, and there are there is no shortage of of sort of sub uh, subtexts to the plot. I, I think the problem that's confronting the market, investors, and, and frankly all of us, is the universality of the problems. You know, inflation has become a global construct. It's not something that's sort of localized or domestic. COVID, you mentioned, of course, the war and its implications uh, has has a global reach, and so. You know, off the back of a, a decade where we enjoyed, you know, really accommodative uh, policies, both monetary and fiscal, which generally conspired to sort of help investors along, we're now being confronted with sort of the opposite impacts uh, at the same time that the economy sort of already slowing. So, but by our lights, the, the macro environment uh, is challenged and is likely to remain so, you know, really for the, the foreseeable future. And I don't want to be too doom and gloom about it, but... We, you know, we need to clear some of these problems, frankly, before we can start to heal. Here in the U.S., clearly a lot of what we're seeing right now is Fed-driven, right? We, to, to what you were just saying, we've gone from very easy monetary policy to now tightening. But let me ask you this. Do you think the Fed actually has the stomach to see this thing through? Like, do you think they have the conviction to raise rates and run off their balance sheet? Or can you foresee a scenario where maybe they flinch? Yeah, I think I actually believe that they they do have the conviction. I think they're trying their level best uh, now that transit uh, transient inflation or transitory nomenclature sort of been put behind us. I think they're trying to convey this notion that interest rates 
sort of a little bit on a, on, a, on a more steady path. It's 50 basis points per meeting. Uh, the chair took 75 basis points sort of uh, off the table prospectively. We're of the view uh, that he did so really because they're going to rely on quantitative tightening, which we can, which we can talk about, uh, to try and alleviate uh, some of the, uh, the, you know, the, 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 um, uh, the headwinds of, of inflation while maintaining some stability in, in the labor market. I do think, though, that the conviction is less about trying to tackle those problems and more about trying to convince investors that they're not, there is not an implicit Fed put uh, and that they're willing, to risk, um, they're willing to risk the holders of risk assets to achieve what their, their two principal objectives are. And I'd say pointedly to your question, whether they see it through, it may be less a function of, of their conviction and more a function of whether something breaks, which requires them to reverse course beforehand. Well, and I think that brings up a good point. You, you, you know, you mentioned the Fed finally putting the word transitory aside. I, I'm curious, do you think the Fed is already too late here? And, and it's funny because I, I certainly don't have a crystal ball, but but I'll tell you, and anybody who listens to this podcast knows I was screaming inflation earlier last year. And for whatever reason, uh, the, the Fed, they just seem to ignore all of the signs. Now, maybe some of that was intentional. Who, who knows? But they did keep saying inflation was transitory, and it just didn't seem like they were taking it very seriously. So I guess my question to you, Nick, is do you think they've made a major policy error here, and now the financial markets are going to have to pay the price? I, I do, to, uh, to a certain degree, believe that in hindsight, they feel they may have been behind the ball and are even still believe they're behind the ball. The, the benefit of being the central bank is that you can catch up very quickly depending upon what outcome you're trying to achieve. And I think they've, they've recognized that the holders of risk assets are, are going to come under some uh, sort of further pain in, in order, as we talked about earlier, to, to get to inflation uh, while keeping a mind's eye on, uh, on unemployment. You know, you talk about, you know, uh, for listeners of your podcast, which we've been for a long time, and, and certainly uh, readers of our own research and investors in our work will know that inflation for longer has been a principal theme of ours uh, for, I think, many of the same reasons, if not all the same, all the same reasons. And, and now what you're seeing with some of the Walmart uh, earnings releases and the Target earnings releases and other things uh, is that it's starting to change uh, consumers' uh, behavior patterns. With rates beginning to come up, I'm, I'm curious, what do you think about overall stock market valuations right now? And again, I've said for the last several months, I feel like a lot of the stocks that have been crushed recently, things like unprofitable tech and meme stocks, some of the crypto companies, in my opinion, they deserve to be crushed. I feel like the market has done a pretty efficient job of, uh, of taking out the garbage. And I'm just honestly not surprised at some of the carnage. And, and once again, I don't have a crystal ball. Everybody knows that. I just feel like a lot of the stuff getting hammered is the same stuff that everyone was saying was overvalued last year. And, and so in many ways, I view this as healthy, if not particularly fun. It's healthy. I, I guess, do you agree with that? And, and what do you think of overall stock market valuations right now? Well, it's certainly not going to be fun. I'd absolutely agree with that. I, I, I do think that there's an element of sort of um, level-setting expectations against price uh, that are that's critical for markets to clear. There's no question. We have, you know, significant imbalances between supply uh, and demand. I'm struck, uh, candidly, by the idea that some of the earnings numbers have held in there. You know, we've seen a particular erosion. Uh, on on the margin side of the equation, you know, EBITDA margins uh, for the index S and P 500 at 17 percent, you know, well off, you know, well off their highs, and so I would anticipate some of those earnings expectations have to come lower. You're seeing it on both sides, right? As we saw it, I mentioned Staples uh, companies, Walmart, Target, etc. Uh, a moment ago, you're seeing it from uh, some of the you know the long duration stocks, uh, Snapchat, etc. Um, this morning in this morning session, and I think for for our investors and and you know for for our, by our lights, the key here is to focus on companies that existed prior to the period of overly accommodative monetary policy. Uh, you know, there's a lot of companies that were formed and came public uh, in an era of of easy money. And what earnings they do have were backstopped by that condition. And frankly, uh, the tide may be, may be going out. So w- with respect to your question specifically, you know, if the earnings held up, you know, at 17 times, the market's not uh, terrifically expensive. But I think we have some suspicion as to whether the earnings will hold up uh, in the fundamental environment that's ahead of us. Okay, so this is perfect. I'm glad we started with the markets because I, I do think this sets a really nice backdrop to talk about your two ETFs. 
and and let's get into those. So the two ETFs launched earlier this year. Uh, Let's first look at the Strategus Macro Thematic Opportunities ETF, ticker SAMT. Give us a quick snapshot on this one. What is this? What does this hold? What's the investment process? Uh, What's what's the investment goal here? So the investment goal was really threefold. The first is w- of which was we, we wanted readers of our research to not be surprised by anything we were doing in the portfolio. And for 15, 20 years, um, you know, sort of the, 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 the hallmark, if you will, of our work was to try and take macro and distill it into an investable conclusion. And so the outlet for that was stock baskets, stock baskets around macro themes and investing in sort of the three or four or five themes with which uh, our research gives us the greatest conviction seemed like an appropriate way uh, to build uh, you know to build a product of exposure for for clients. One of the things that we sort of you know saw in the development process of this was that a lot of the um, thematic ETFs and they you know the proliferation has been uh, unbelievable uh, that have come out over the last five and seven years, the performance profile has not been terrifically strong. And, and one of the things that struck us on why that was the case is because once a, a theme is revealed in the marketplace, by the time uh, a new ETF is brought to market 90, 120, 180 days later, the theme has started to lose momentum. So we wanted to have a product that would allow us to rotate through themes as we were able to measure the momentum of those themes in the macro environment. And that allows us, we hope, to sort of be a product for all seasons, early in the cycle, maybe more growthy, more pro-cyclical, later in the cycle, more defensive, as things come up along the way uh, that are exogenous or esoteric, we want to be able to have the capacity uh, to invest uh, invest in those as well. And how are you determining those macro themes? So if I look at the fact sheet from uh, the the end of April, the four themes in there are deglobalization, quantitative tightening, inflation for longer, which you mentioned earlier, and then cyclical defensive. But uh, to to your point, you can rotate into new themes if the market environment so presents itself. How how are you determining those those broader themes? Yeah, so as a macro research shop, we're constantly trying to take an evaluation of of the landscape. And we mentioned inflation for longer. That's been something uh, that's been prevalent. There are are, uh, characteristics of inflation, we believe, in this market cycle that are similar to previous uh, periods of, of elevated inflation. There are many things that are dissimilar. So we tried to build really a characteristic profile uh, of each theme. And then after we've done that, we go and we try to find the securities, common stocks, uh, which will allow us to have the most direct exposure to it. So inflation for longer you know, is a perfect example. Uh, you think about a company like Nucor, um, we, we felt to be able to you know, pass along higher costs as, as commodity prices were rising. Uh, they're vertically integrated into the supply chain. They uh, ultimately focus on, um, on more finished product, which are, which are higher margin products. So you're looking for the, the specific characteristics that could, you know, could respond well uh, in, in whatever particular thematic environment you're, you're focused on. The other sort of side of that is, is thinking about our cyclical defensive theme. Right. So now all of a sudden the business cycle evolves. Uh, advisors, uh, you know, love ETFs because you know they're easy to use. Investors are, are sort of uh, given the narrative about how tax efficient they are. Well, they're less tax efficient if you're trading in and out of ETFs. So we wanted to have a one product that would sort of allow you to uh, navigate the business cycle. And cyclical defensives is sort of the sort of our view thematically right now of what's developing. The consensus is giving. Um, generally holds that will evidence a soft landing. Uh, they may be wrong and they may be right, but the market is responding to soft landing types of dynamics. Uh, cyclical defensiveness gives you some of the protection of things that are ostensibly safer, while also sort of levering up to some things that remain cyclical. There's strength in the labor market, et cetera. So we're building a mosaic about about the broader landscape, uh, and that's how ultimately uh, we decide on the themes. And to be clear here, how often are the macro themes updated? And, and then I guess even within a macro theme, how often are individual securities changed? 
So, so both of those things are happening constantly. But in terms of the portfolio turnover, you may see one or two themes turnover in the portfolio each year. We are targeting concepts that are not overtly short-dated. We want intermediate-term themes, things that at the shorter end would might be you know six or eight months, but even at the longer end, 12 or 15 months plus. Right. The key the key element here is is the momentum, and we want to find things that can long you know run a, a slightly longer race. And then every day we're looking at sort of the constituent uh, responsiveness to the you know how the theme is playing out in the marketplace, and we will make. You know, little adjustments on occasion, um, n- not with great frequency, but every once in a while, something about a particular security, uh, it becomes a little bit more about them and less about the theme. And so we want to replace that uh, or de-emphasize it in, in terms of our core holdings. And there may be another stock that comes along and says, hey, this, this we'd actually be a better fit uh, for, for the way that the theme is evolving in the marketplace. And so we will make, you know, we will make smaller adjustments along the way. And then obviously thematic is in the name of the ETF. But if you look under the hood at what this holds, you you do get some diversification here. And to your point, you are rotating into different macro themes. It's not like you're just sticking with one theme all the way through. My question is, do you see this replacing core equity exposure in, in a portfolio? Or should this just be viewed more like a thematic ETF, which tends to be a satellite holding? We really tried to build it as something that could be uh, part of the, the core holdings of a portfolio. You know, if, if, if investors and advisors sort of believe uh, in the process that we've built over the last couple of decades, identifying where we are in the business cycle, identifying what are the, you know, the key thematic things that, are, that, again, have momentum, then we should be able to rotate during the business cycle where you'd be more defensively positioned at the end, uh, more opportunistically positioned you know, towards, towards the beginning. That really, by definition, is a, is a core holding. Uh, so we think it fits, we fits, it fits right in there. Okay, briefly here, the other ETF you launched earlier this year is the Strategus Global Policy Opportunities ETF, ticker SAGP. So this seeks to hold companies that could benefit from uh, changes in government policies. Just briefly explain this one. Yeah, I think many companies over the last couple of decades, uh, for all of the talk of draining the swamp and, and sort of removing special interests, have found that, you know, Washington is in part the center of their universe, and that's true for domestic enterprise as well as uh, companies from abroad that are doing business here in the United States. And so companies have started to look at corporate lobbying uh, as really a research and development expense. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a long-dated investment uh, to try and extract or prevent uh, conditions of change within an industry uh, that would be, you know, detrimental or preferential to their operating environment. And so, you know, we took a, a we've taken a long look at this. We've run a, a domestic-oriented portfolio uh, for um, for almost 10 years, and we really focus in on how much companies are are lobbying and for what they're lobbying. And themes emerge, uh, and themes evolve, and they gain in, uh, and and fall off in by way of momentum. And so we're using sort of this research and development lobbying spend as guidance to help us understand, um, you know, what, what is gaining favor and losing it in Washington. And the piece I'd say that's critical here, Nate, is that ultimately we believe we can, we can show um, that, that lobbying and, and some of this investment that companies make do ultimately matriculate to the bottom line, that there is a tangible uh, benefit to corporate profits uh, when companies are able to, to sort of change the narrative in D.C. And on that note, I mean, do you only care about the lobbying spend, that lobbying intensity, or does it matter if you actually think those lobbying efforts will be successful? Like I get what you're saying in terms of it filtering down to the bottom line, companies spending yeah. more on lobbying, but do, do you care if you actually have a view on whether or not that lobbying will be successful? So I would answer the question two ways. In, in terms of uh, inclusion in the overall portfolio, n- none of our own political or even, frank, frankly, uh, operating biases sort of factor in, right? The, we're really focused on the intensity, which takes lobbying as a spend and sort of common sizes it across sort of the universe of, of, of companies that, that we're considering. I think one of the reasons that corporate lobbying maybe has a bad rap uh, in the marketplace or amongst um, voters uh, is because, you know, rent-seeking is, is generally looked at as, as disfavorable. And so when you ask about success, one of the 
elements I would highlight is sometimes it's about mitigating a really bad outcome, making it less bad. That's successful uh, lobbying. Sometimes it's about affecting a change that maybe wasn't on on the docket altogether, and therefore that would be an overt an overt success. But by diversifying the portfolio, such as we have, to you know a hundred names, both domestic and uh, and international alike, um, you're able to get a really good cross current of things um, that do tend to fall on both sides of the political aisle, but in the moment have the momentum that ultimately makes it beneficial for the company or the industry. Well, Nick, with that, we'll have to leave it there. Fantastic perspective this week. Uh, Best of luck to you on these ETFs. Thank you for joining me. Many thanks, Nate. That was Nick Bonesack, CEO of Strategus Asset Management. I'm now joined by David Auerbach, Managing Director at Armada ETF Advisors, who back in March, they launched the Home Appreciation U.S. REIT ETF, ticker symbol HOUSE, H-A-U-S. Very nice work on that ticker symbol. And this is the first active pure play U.S. residential real estate ETF. And I'll tell you now, David is someone who knows the real estate market inside and out. I think you'll hear that uh, pretty quickly. And he's now on the line with me from Dallas. David, great finally having you on the podcast. Nate, I'm so honored to be here. Thank you so much. And with an introduction like that, boy, I, I, uh, the, the, uh, the check is in the mail, my friend. Thank you for those <laughs> kind words. I appreciate it. Well, hey, let's start with the ETF itself. And then I definitely want to uh, broaden out and discuss the residential real estate market and everything going on there. But uh, first, to begin, walk us through the ETF. What does this hold? What's the investment goal? Any, anything else you think is noteworthy? Sure. Uh, so, as you mentioned, it is the first active pure play residential REIT ETF on the market. When I mention that, that means that there is no home builders, Home Depot Lowe's, uh, mortgage REITs, mortgage financing. This is pure play residential. The idea of the fund was built off of the fact that Everybody has a story regarding the housing market across the country right now. It doesn't matter if you're located in Raleigh, Jacksonville, Atlanta, Tampa, Denver. Try to buy a house right now. Try and sell a house right now. Everybody has a story. With so many people trying to buy homes across the country, that means that many people are being shut out of the housing market. And so we built this fund based off of two principles. Number one, where are people moving across the country? And I'm in Texas, and it's a great example of a ton of companies relocating to Texas. But then based on all that demand of where people are relocating, which of the residential REIT sectors are benefiting from that relocation? And so our portfolio consists of apartment REITs, single-family rental REITs, manufactured housing REITs, and then the senior housing REITs, the retirement homes, the nursing homes, those types of properties. David, I know earlier this year uh, there was a launch of the Kelly Residential and Apartment Real Estate ETF, ticker RESI, R-E-S-I. And I actually covered this on the, the podcast at this time. But, you know, as I think about investors and advisors out there uh, conducting due diligence and looking at the various alternatives in the market, that this may come up when they're, they're researching house do you want to offer a quick uh, compare and contrast here? Just any key similarities or, or differences? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Kelly ETFs, uh, their founder, Kevin Kelly. Uh, Kevin was uh, ahead of the time. You know, he created some of the first REIT sector thematic ETFs going back to 2018 uh, through Pacer Benchmark, uh, INDS, SRVR, RTL. Uh, so he launched RESI, R-E-S-I, uh, in February of this year, and Resi is a unique portfolio. It is a passive fund. Uh, it also, I would call it a North American residential re- ETF as five of the 27 constituents uh, focus on Canada. And of the full 100%, just around 10% or so of it would represent Canadian housing names. One other difference would be is that he does not have any, uh, they don't have any senior housing in their portfolio. So they are single family rentals, uh, manufactured housing, and um, apartments as well. So, so as you go through that, I mean, clearly one thing that stands out to me is uh, house is active, resi's passive. And on that active management piece, I, I'd love to have you give us a flavor for some of the factors that go into selecting specific REITs. What, what, what does yeah, the active abs- piece look like? 
Yeah, absolutely. And, and as I mentioned, so the first part of it's based off of the where are people relocating across the country and then which of those uh, companies are benefiting from that relocation. Uh, we're taking this uh, understanding of it's very important to know what's under the hood of your ETF. I think one thing that separates us with so many ETF, if not all the ETF issuers that are out there, is I have built a full REIT experience management team to run this ETF. Uh, my portfolio manager was an uh, institutional buy-side portfolio for 30-plus 30, uh, 30 years, managing billions of dollars in the REIT industry. As part of that, I formed what I called the REIT Advisory Board. The REIT Advisory Board consists of industry leaders and legends uh, that sat in various chairs, and I'll break it down a little bit more, but these uh, very well-respected leaders know these companies, know this industry backwards, forwards, inside and out. Uh, my advisory board consists of, I mentioned my portfolio manager. His boss was the founder of this uh, institutional investment firm. In addition, I have a very well-respected retired REIT sell-side analyst, as well as a uh, retired REIT CEO. And I was a trader for 20-plus years in the REIT industry. So we're taking this, I call this triangle slash, if you throw me in, square approach that you could be the smartest real estate investor, or you could be what I call grandma and grandpa who live in the villages that may not know what's happening in the nationwide housing market. But our team, who all we've spent for the past 150, 200 years, deep, deep, deep in the REIT industry, we know these companies backwards, forwards, inside and out, and are able to leverage all this experience and wisdom on behalf of all investors. David, the other aspect that I think of when investors and advisors are conducting due diligence in this space is obviously some of the broader REIT ETFs on the market pop up, right? Something like the Vanguard Real Estate ETF, ticker V&Q, or the iShares U.S. Real Estate ETF, ticker IYR. My, my question is, is House intended to complement these types of ETFs uh, for, for, you know, for investors who want REIT exposure, or is it uh, uh, viewed as a replacement? Nate, that's a fantastic question, and I have to say VNQ and IYR are the two bellwethers of the REIT industry. Fantastic portfolios. You're getting exposure to every REIT sector that's out there, uh, offices, uh, cell towers, data centers, industrial, self-storage, student housing, uh, so many different sectors, I believe like 17 different sectors that play into those two ETFs. We view House as a good complement to VNQ and IYR. And here's the, the logic is VNQ and IYR are passive. They rebalance, I believe, on a uh, quarterly or semi-annual uh, basis. If you use COVID as the example, think about the stuff that did well during COVID, work from home, data centers, towers, industrial REITs. Think about what didn't do so well, offices, hotels, malls. You know, in a passive fund, when they do that rebalance through COVID, you're still sitting on offices, hotels, and malls. Whereas an active manager would have been overweight to stories that you're not seeing on CNBC and Bloomberg, that are not talking about the double-digit rental revenue growth that the residential REITs are showing, or the amount of demand, the 98, 99% occupancy that some of these guys are showing across the country. Um, and so we view that this would be a very good complement or a bolt-on to a VNQ slash IYR holding. David, you brought up some interesting points there, and I, I guess this is a good spot to talk about the, the current residential market. And look, I know on the single-family housing side, uh, the, the overarching narrative has been to, to what you were hitting on. I mean, there's extremely strong demand, I feel like especially from millennials who are now forming households in much bigger numbers. And then there's been this uh, structural lack of supply, right? There's simply not enough houses uh, to, to go around, and, and this impacts both single-family homes, but also uh, rental properties. And I, I'm just curious, are both of those factors still in place, and do you believe they'll continue being factors moving forward? Absolutely, and we could spend a whole hour just on this one topic alone. There's so many things to break down here. Um, let's take it from the millennials' perspective. Uh, the starter home, I don't know if you had a starter home back in the day when you, you know, I did. started your family. <laughs> you know, that term doesn't exist anymore. Um, because of investor demand or the open door uh, effect or the Chip and Joanna Gaines effect of, you know, properties being renovated and flipped, you know, that has uh, played into the demand for the housing market. But in addition, you know, the average 
homeowner, the guy that's looking for that $200,000 home, can't afford the inventory that's coming online. You know, we just saw new home sales data come out today. The numbers were down once again, because with mortgage rates going up, it's that much harder now to get into that house. We know that rates are going to continue to rise, which means we know the cost of that mortgage is going to keep going up. And unless you come to the table, especially in places like Texas, you know, all cash above offer price ready to close today, it's just going to be getting that much harder for the person to buy a home. So I don't see this changing anytime soon. Yeah. And you mentioned mortgage rates. I mean, we've gone from about... uh... 3% 3% on the 30-year mortgage in January to nearly 5.5% today. I mean, just an enormous move. Clearly, that makes a big difference in monthly house payments. Can you offer some additional color here just in terms of how big of a factor that can be? Yeah, it's, it's definitely playing into it. There's no doubt. I mean, everybody, when you think about REITs, then the topic becomes, oh, well, we're in a rising inflation environment. Interest rates are going up. Do I want to be in hard assets? Do I want to be in REITs? And I recommend any listener, if you walk away from this, the one site I recommend you go check out is REIT.com, R-E-I-T.com. That's the homepage for the National Association of Real Estate Investment Trust. They have a wealth of data. You will walk away a smarter investor. But a couple of takeaways from, from what NARI has posited on this. Number one, in times of rising interest rates and inflation, REITs have tended to outperform. As far as residential REITs, If you look at the return as far as compared to inflation, the 12-month returns for residential REITs outpace inflation in 75% of the quarters from March of 94 to March of 22, and 80% of those quarters when when inflation was moderate or high. And they view in moderate to high, calling it 2.5% to 7% and higher. And then NOI, that's the net operating income, you know, the average NOI in quarters with moderate or high inflation was 4.3% compared to 2.8% when inflation was low, meaning these REITs do tend to outperform in these times of volatility. You know, models say 5 to 15% in REITs in real estate. And the re- there's a reason why, because REITs are dividend income vehicles. It's a tax structure vehicle that passes off 90% of that income to shareholders in the form of dividends. And so it's a great portfolio hedge in times of volatility. Um, one last point, and we'll, we'll, you know, to get back on track, I always say that REITs are the tortoise and the tortoise and the hare of your portfolio. Slow and steady wins the race. REITs are boring, and boring is good. We see so, so many headlines about Tesla and Bitcoin and, you know, Kathy and, and ARC funds and everything. But yet, you're not talking about the lease agreements that these companies have in place with their tenants or how in demand Starbucks and CVS and the grocery stores and the things that we do every single day, you can't go from point A to point B without interacting with the REIT. And that's why I always say slow and steady wins the race. David, we only have about two minutes left, but I I, want to ask you about another topic because as I was thinking through our conversation today and the various uh, supply and demand factors in residential real estate. I kept coming back to this uh, narrative around larger asset managers buying up residential properties. And, you know, the thought here is that these these asset managers are, are driving up prices and rents and pricing out middle class families. Is that a, a real factor here at all? Or do you think the media makes too much of that? No, it's definitely a factor. I mean, it seems like not a day goes by that you don't see a headline about some sovereign wealth fund, uh, a big Wall Street firm, an investment manager, somebody getting involved in the single-family rental space. Look, we know that we are four to five million homes uh, in uh, lack of supply here to satisfy the amount of demand that's out there across the country. And so this is a way for um, companies to play into that demand. If we know what the average millennial uh, homeowner is looking for, you know, there's places across this country that people never get the chance to own the home. But this could be the way to where you're able to rent to own or uh, build to rent, let's say. This is a way to play into that demand. So, you know, obviously, there's some smart minds out there. Warren Buffett, Berkshire Hathaway, 
um, Jamie Dimon, Bank of America, Brian Callahan of uh, Bank of America, as, you know, a couple of examples. These are all f- firms that are getting involved in that space because they see where their um, consumers are going, their customers are going. And look, at the end of the day, real estate is personal. We all have something in common that we're all lucky to go to sleep with a roof over our heads. We may not care about Tesla, Bitcoin, or all these things that are out there, but we do care about where we go to sleep at night. And house is a way that leverages in where you go to sleep, where you're going to go to sleep tonight. Well, David, perfect ending point. I've got to tell you, I love your passion around this topic. We're certainly going to have to do this uh, again, but so great to finally have you on the podcast. Congratulations on the launch of house. Thank you for joining me this week. Hey, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. That was David Auerbach, Managing Director at Armada ETF Advisors. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. I want to thank one of our sponsors, Capital Group. If you would like to learn more about Capital Group's ETFs, you can visit capitalgroup.com ETFs. Next week, it'll be a best of ETF Prime. I haven't done one of these in a while, so I'll be revisiting some of my favorite conversations so far this year. Uh, certainly hope you'll join me for that. Until then, have a great week, everyone.